a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks for dipping your toe in the pool of wrong think. It's become a necessity in these days of groupthink that are being kind of forced on us from every angle. We'll get into that in some detail a little bit later on in the show. In the meantime, I appreciate you pulling up a chair and considering some of the events going on around us. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Well, this is one of those days, in fact, it seems like every day is one of those days where the the great dilemma that I face is where to begin, because there is so much going on. I mean, just just as, as an example, over, over the weekend, let's see, we had... Uh, we had the President of the United States visiting American troops in Poland and uh, inadvertently sit telling them, now, when you go into Ukraine, <laughs> what? Hello? <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, I, I have never seen more, what you talk about, Willis, looks than I saw on the faces of those troops in the video clips that I saw of them interacting with the President. It's just like, what? Really? And then, uh, of course, uh, he did uh, make a comment that uh, the White House has been trying to walk back ever since about, you know, this man cannot be allowed to remain in power, speaking of Vladimir Putin. So, yeah, if we were trying to throw a little gas on the fire, well, way to go, Joe. I think you may have done it. A uh, lot of talk about, uh, of course, uh, the Oscars. I I make it a point not to watch the Oscars just because really Hollywood has had very little to offer me, but I'm having to reconsider whether or not I might start watching. I mean, they're going to start beating the crap out of each other on live television. I don't know. I might actually be interested in watching that just because there's some people that I would really enjoy watching them get the cred beaten out of them. But I will only say this about the uh, Will Smith, Chris Rock thing. I'm just grateful that Chris Rock did not make a joke about Alec Baldwin's wife because well, that could have that could have gone really bad. Oh, back to the back to uh, President Biden again. You know, just as if things weren't getting complicated enough, you know, $5 a gallon gas and so forth and out-of-control inflation and the prospect of nuclear war and all of that stuff. Uh, he started mentioning food shortages this last week. Did you hear this? Hmm. So I, I hope this doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy in the same sense that, what, there's a toilet paper shortage. Remember a couple of years ago what, what that was like? People, uh, you know, hoarding toilet paper, fist fighting in the toilet paper aisles. So if, if right now you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is, whew, this is a lot to consider. I'll agree. This is, this is an awful lot to consider. And we're going to try to make sense of a good portion of it today. But before we go into current events, I want to share with you the most remarkable story I've ever heard about, uh, about not being a helicopter parent. So I'm going to start with the question, are we raising a generation of snowflakes? I know a lot of people would say, well, yeah, you know, kids have to have safe spaces and they cry and they chant and they, you know, they can't hear things that would counter whatever it is that they are, are being indoctrinated with, either in public school or, you know, on college campuses. I want to tell you the story of the Abernathy boys going for a ride. 
just to illustrate how far we have come. This is, this is a story of free-range children in the early 20th century. H.D. Miller shared this on the eccentric culinary substack. And H.D. Miller says, if you want to talk about a single dramatic example of just how much America has changed in the last century or so, stop talking about trips to the moon and supercomputers and start talking about this. In 1910, two brothers, Temple and Louis Abernathy, saddled up a pair of ponies and rode alone from their home in Frederick, Oklahoma, to New York City, almost 2,000 miles away, just so they could see Teddy Roosevelt give a speech. Now, at the time, Lewis, who was called Bud, was 10 years old. Temp was 6. Lewis rode his father's horse, Sam Bass. Temple rode a pony named Geronimo. Temple was so small that he had to climb on a stump just to mount the horse and often slid down the pony's leg rather than drop to the ground. Now, they rode without maps, watching the sun and asking directions as they went. Behind their saddles, they carried bedrolls and bacon and oats for their horses. They paid bill, they paid food and hotel bills by check. They wore broad-brimmed hats, long pants, and spurs, and stayed in touch with their father through telegrams and occasional phone calls. Now, difficulties did occur. The, the boys faced a blizzard. Geronimo foundered and had to be replaced with a horse that was named Wiley Haynes after an Oklahoma deputy. Temple came down with a fever, and he was once almost swept away, crossing a river. Six and ten years old. What kind of parents would let your boys get on horses and ride to New York City? Well, their dad did, and after two months on the road, alone, they arrived safely in Washington, D.C., where they were greeted by the Speaker of the House, and they met President Taft, whom they felt a fine man but inferior to their hero, Teddy Roosevelt, two weeks later, they found themselves in New York City riding behind Teddy in a ticker tape parade in Roosevelt's honor. he just returned from a grant hunting trip to Africa. Now, for an encore, the two, teen, the two preteens, again, 10 and 6 years old, shipped their horses home by train, bought an automobile, and drove it back to Oklahoma. And that's when things got really crazy. <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, my kids, Dad, can I borrow the car? Well, I don't know. Let's talk about this. <laughs> Dad, can we go to New York and uh, see Teddy Roosevelt? All right, just be back by August, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, so what's the opposite of a helicopter parent? Well, that would be John Abernathy, United States Marshal for the Western District of Oklahoma. Now, Abernathy was by any standard a singular man. A working cowboy at nine, by his mid-twenties, he'd become famous for his unique method of hunting wolves. He would drag them out of their dens alive with his bare hands, earning the nickname Catch Him Alive Abernathy. Now, he actually shoved his bare hand into the animal's mouth and then used wire to bind the jaws shut. And apparently that skill <clears throat> so impressed uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who came to Oklahoma to hunt with Abernathy, that he made Abernathy all five foot two inches tall, a U.S. Marshal, the youngest in an American history. Well, two years after that, in 1907, Abernathy's wife, Jessie Pearl, died, leaving Jack to raise six children under the age of nine. He managed with help from his parents in a frontier attitude about what we may call age-appropriate activities. Grief, never mentioned in the accounts, undoubtedly played a role in it too, but what sort of role? Well, who knows? But it deserves to be mentioned that the great ride to New York in 1910, that was not the Abernathy boys' first rodeo. A year earlier, in 1909, Temp, nine years old, and Bud, five years old, 
had ridden from Oklahoma to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and back. That's a 1,300-mile round trip done at the ages of 5 and 9, completely alone. Now, if you've ever driven through the Texas Panhandle in northern New Mexico, you know that is some wide-open, lonesome country, barely settled even today. And back in 1909, this was the haunt of outlaws and bad men. Now, the Santa Fe trip had been riddled with near disasters. Uh, Bud's horse, Sam Bass, borrowed from his father, and the Shetland pony mix named Geronimo were sure-footed. But Temple contracted diarrhea by drinking gypsum water and sprained both ankles trying to dismount. Bud was forced to lie awake one night, firing his shotgun into the darkness toward a pack of wolves that circled while his brother slept. The boys ran out of food and water between stops. They were saved by the kindness of strangers. Here's the most chilling part, though. It was a note scribbled by the point of a lead-tipped bullet on a brown paper sack addressed to the Marshal of Oklahoma and delivered to the Abernathy home. And it said, I don't like one hair on your head, but I do like the stuff that, I, that is in these kids. We shadowed them through the worst part of New Mexico to see that they were not harmed by sheep herders, mean men, or animals. And it was signed by A-Z-Y, that's the initials of a rustler whose friend had been killed in a shootout with Abernathy. Isn't that a fascinating story? I'd never heard of these boys until just over the weekend. And it's kind of a shame that they've fallen into the cracks of American history. I mean, I, I just can't imagine this. You know, these, these boys really typified that, that can-do attitude. Now, I know today Child Protective Services would be called and the authorities would be on the way and they'd be off to a foster home where they could be safely coddled and indoctrinated and how to be sensitive and woke and use the proper pronouns so as not to offend their peers and blah, 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 blah. Unbelievable. Six and ten years old getting on a horse and riding 2,000 miles to New York, or to Washington and then to New York. But that was only, you know, that was really no big deal because they just pulled off a 1,300-mile trek from Oklahoma to Santa Fe earlier. Unbelievable. Well, make of it what you will. I'll include a link to the story. It's worth reading. There's a lot of extra background in there. And, uh, and the next time your kid asks permission to go do something fun, hey, can we go ride bikes? I don't know. Think about the Abernathy boys. (laughs) Wish them well. Send them with some oats and some bacon. And, you know, tell them, don't forget to telegraph when you get the chance. We'll want to know that you're doing well. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Want to mention lifesavingfood.com? You can click on the link I provide in my show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a look at that website. Take a look at the different packages, the different uh, entrees, the different options available to you in terms of food storage. And then ask yourself, in the face of all the uncertainty swirling around us right now, might it not be a good idea to... Have a little something set aside for a rainy day. I I heard from more people over this last weekend, people who personally either tweeted me or, or I'm sorry, texted me, reached out to me, called me, uh, emailed me, wanted to know, hey, if, uh, if you were going to be stocking up on essentials, what are some of the things that you would uh, be looking at? 
So a lot of people are thinking about it now. The, the, the key is get your stuff squared away before the vast majority of people start to feel panicky. And with the president talking about food shortages, it sounds like uh, the panicky part could be coming, maybe sooner than later. Just understand, this is this is the time to, to buy. If you do it through uh, life-saving food, it would make me very happy, but I'm not saying, you know, that's that's the only place to go. I'm just saying right now they've got great inventory. They'll save you some money. They will uh, they will get you set up, but you got to act sooner than later. Sorry, that that feels like high pressure. Um, there's there's an urgency that I feel in getting this message out. So please act on it. Click on the link lifesavingfood.com. So I wanted to take a minute here and uh, just for those who are looking at at crypto and considering, well, do I really want to to get into crypto? And do I really understand it? Right now, that's where I find myself. Is I'm I am in the midst of, of trying to bolster my understanding of what crypto is and what it isn't. And I got a great article here from David Waugh. This was uh, published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org, explaining a very key difference. I found this really informative. Not every crypto is decentralized. So there's a difference between proof of work versus proof of stake. He says cryptocurrencies operate differently than the money we're used to because they're solely electronic. There is no physical currency to trade. Instead, each network creates a record or blockchain of every transaction that takes place on the network. And there are currently two main mechanisms or types of mechanisms used to verify transactions on the network. There's proof of work and proof of stake. So POW and POS. While the industry was founded on POW, Many networks are moving to proof-of-stake. The MIT Technology Review dubbed proof-of-stake one of the top 10 breakthrough technologies of 2022, while the European Union almost banned proof-of-work. So this brings us to consensus mechanisms, which is the process of validating transactions across many nodes of the network. Consensus consensus mechanisms are necessary for cryptocurrency networks to maintain the accuracy and the validity of their blockchains or ledgers. Since no central authority controls the ledger, a consensus of the majority of the network verifies each transaction to make sure it doesn't contain incorrect or fraudulent transactions. Now, with a centralized payment network like PayPal or Venmo, verification is easy. But that's because a single authority controls the ledger and acts as a trusted party to verify or clear the transactions. So an individual can't double spend on these networks. On a cryptocurrency network, however, with the, because of the ease with which a digital currency could be reproduced without a central authority verifying transactions, an individual could attempt to sneak duplicate transactions into the blockchain before the next block is added. Now, proof-of-work was implemented in 2009 by Satoshi Nakamoto as the consensus mechanism for Bitcoin. That's the original cryptocurrency network. And the Bitcoin network continues to operate using proof-of-work. So, how does that work? Well, when someone wants to transfer funds from one Bitcoin address to another... He announces the transaction to the network by signing it with his private key and sending it to the recipient address via its public key. The transaction is bundled with other recent transactions into a block that's added roughly every 10 minutes to the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, the blocks are created through mining. For each block, Bitcoin miners or computers compete to solve a cryptographic puzzle using processing power, which requires a significant amount of electricity. 
Once the first miner solves the problem, a block of verified transaction is added to the chains and they become part of the permanent record. In exchange for their work, the miner receives a reward in Bitcoin. So mining is the work in the term proof of work. Miners use their computing power or work to prove the network. And because the network creates a permanent record of verified transaction, proof of work eliminates the need for a centralized authority. Now, proof of stake emerged in 2013 as an alternative to proof of work. It's used by networks like Cardano and Solana. The Ethereum network actually is planning to switch from proof of work to proof of stake in the future. And its creator, Vitalik Buterin, is a major proponent of proof of stake as a consensus mechanism. Now, where proof-of-work relies on the work put in by miners to create the longest blockchain, proof-of-stake involves network participants staking or locking up their crypto assets in exchange for becoming validators of the blockchain. Validators are randomly selected by the network to verify the blockchain, and uh, proof-of-stake validators are similar to proof-of-work miners, but instead of work, their stake allows them to validate the network. This is how Campbell Harvey describes it in DeFi and the Future of Finance. Validators make themselves available by staking their cryptocurrency, and then they are randomly selected selected to propose a block. The proposed block needs to be attested by a majority of the other validators, and validators profit both by proposing a block as well as attesting to the validity of other proposed blocks. So, Proof-of-stake uses a process of slashing that can actually be used to penalize bad actors. If a validator proposes or validates bad blocks or is inactive on the network and doesn't sign transactions, they can have their stake slashed. Slashing helps the proof-of-stake network discourage downtime and double signing, both of which would be harmful to the network. Now, a lot of this is, I know, it's, it's jargon that is like, okay, do I understand exactly what that means? And the truth is, no, but it does make sense at a certain level, or at least the level which I'm able to comprehend it. And there are trade-offs between proof-of-work and proof-of-stake. Proof-of-stake networks don't require anywhere near the same amount of energy as a proof-of-work network does because they don't involve thousands of specialized computers churning away simultaneously and consuming significant electricity working to solve that cryptographic puzzle. The significantly lower amount of energy required by proof-of-stake to achieve consensus is viewed by many as a very positive feature of the protocol. Now further, because proof-of-stake networks don't require many computers working to achieve consensus, they potentially exhibit increased throughput or the ability to process transactions faster. Now that said, there are significant drawbacks to proof-of-stake. Cryptocurrencies are on the whole presented to the public as decentralized, but networks using proof-of-stake consensus mechanisms are drawn into a process that moves away from any meaningful decentralization. This is how Lynn Alden puts it. With a proof-of-stake system, the more coins you have, the more voting power you have. And those with the coins are also the ones earning, the new coins from staking. Since they don't need to expend resources to stake, they can simply increase their overall staking amount as they earn ongoing coins from staking rewards and exponentially grow their influence on the network over time, forever. Network dominance tends to lead to more network dominance, in other words. So the governance of of proof-of-stake networks, therefore, becomes more like that of a centralized corporation rather than a decentralized cryptocurrency. And with respect to monetary networks, a corporate board of unelected officials is arguably similar to the fiat system that we already have. 
So the future of consensus mechanisms is going to be on people's minds. And, you know, current cryptocurrency adoption rates outpace early adoption rates of the Internet. In other words, crypto is here to stay, and it will be intricately linked to the future of money and financial markets. Now, levels of decentralization and uh, trust vary across cryptocurrency networks, and different networks serve different purposes for different customers. But the choice of consensus mechanism between proof-of-work and proof-of-stake is a key determinant of the decentralization, efficiency, and security of the cryptocurrency network. See, it was the decentralization that really attracted my attention in the first place. I believe there is much more freedom to be found in decentralization than the other way around. So I'm a little bit sad to hear that uh, maybe maybe crypto is moving in a direction that's not so decentralized. Stick around. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. If you're looking to uh, set aside a few precious metals in the form of uh, lead, copper, and brass, well, this is who I would send you to. You can uh, click on the link that I provide in my show notes, or if you're lucky enough to live in southern Utah, you can actually uh, you can do business with HSL Ammo right there locally in St. George. Spencer Worthington is my buddy. He is a great guy, very committed to the cause of freedom, but also just a great productive member of society and one of the greatest friends that the shooting sports has ever seen, at least in, in that corner of the world. Do me the honor of uh, getting to know him and uh, doing business with him. I would greatly appreciate it. So for the next couple segments, I'm going to talk about a couple of fairly heavy topics, starting with the mass psychosis that we have been experiencing for the last two years. Now, Michael Bryant has a a really great recounting of the two years to flatten the world and how that effort is going. And he starts with a couple of with a quote from George Orwell, first of all, from 1984. All this is a digression. The real power, the power we have to fight For night and day is not power over things, but over men. How does one man assert his power over another? By making him suffer. Obedience is not enough unless he is suffering. How can you be sure that he is obeying your will and not his own? Power is inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Do you begin to see then what kind of world we are creating? Oh, that is, I mean, that applies on so many levels. And he also follows it up with a quote from B.W. Powell. We become slaves the moment we hand keys to the definition of reality entirely over to someone else. Whether it's a business, an economic theory, a political party, the White House, News World, or CNN. Now from here, Michael Bryant says, COVID-19 has magically disappeared. After more than two years of nonstop bombardment with COVID news, there's been none at all in mainstream headlines for over a week. The media giveth and the media taketh away. Through the immaculate erasure of the COVID crisis, those responsible for these harms are attempting to make us forget what they did to us, to our families, and the permanent damage they caused to society. Think back to what life was two years ago. And imagine if someone told you that a health emergency would require a crackdown on all social and economic life. 
Now, remarkably, the public health orders moved quickly from flattening the curve and slowing the spread to containment, suppression, contact tracing, social isolation, quarantine, face coverings, de facto house arrest, a.k.a. lockdowns, that's a prison slave camp term, and mandated experimental ejections. In order to keep us safe, government policies mushroomed from innocuous instructions into draconian degrees. Now, the limitation of the right to engage in basic economic transactions, the limitation of the right to freedom of movement, limitations on the right to practice religion, the suspension of the right to an education, the denial of the right to a livelihood, the removal of the right to receive or refuse medical attention, suspension of public meetings, suspension of juries, suspension of the right to freedom of expression, denial of the right to assembly, and much else became the new operating principles of the COVID world. The institution of a biosecurity police state was birthed, according to health authorities and others. The uh, according to health authorities and others, the power to quarantine someone considered infected or simply to have been in contact with a purported case. To make this appear necessary and acceptable, an intensive full-spectrum psychological assault on our sensibilities was implemented. COVID nineteen was hyped as the new Black Death. We were told by important-looking people that millions will die. The entire planet is in danger. A global response is required, and everyone must get in line with the program whilst heroes and experts take charge of this new global war to keep us safe. Illogical catchphrases designed to hypnotize the public into a malleable mental state were repeated over and over in every media outlet, across virtually every social institution, and plastered throughout all walks of the public sphere. Flatten the curve, the new normal, social distancing, and follow the science became the nation's COVID shibboleths. Media bullhorns relentlessly blasted the doublespeak into the public psyche. Oxymorons and euphemisms dominated the contours of any and all COVID-related discourse. Now, such linguistic manipulations were readily absorbed and seamlessly adopted by much of the public and became the double-think phraseology of the COVID era. Mantras of the COVID era were followed by a fleet of psychologically disorienting and arbitrary regulations, advice, and guidelines, which were quickly put in place, selectively enforced, and subsequently changed. No one was spared. Children came under sustained psychological attacks branded super spreaders and were told to keep away from grandparents lest they kill granny. Operating in a fog of psychological trauma, everyone moved through a world devoid of smiles and laughter where faces were hidden by masks and smothered in cloth. Now, this barrage of brutalizing manipulations was designed to, no- to condition us to accept the tyrannical impositions of the new normal. And the emotional toll, because of COVID fear-mongering and media hysteria, caused the citizenry to become mentally tamed like institutionalized prisoners who would come begging for a way out. And the preordained and only exit from this viral nightmare demanded that society embrace the magical cure of the miracle inoculation. A medical miracle promised to be so effective that it would be required year after year after year. (laughs) When not embraced, it would be enforced. You know, one of the striking characteristics of the media blitzkrieg surrounding the COVID pandemic, or to be precise, the reporting of the pandemic, is how it so easily resembled the war on terror, or indeed any other war, when considered purely in terms of its effect. Mask wearing became a patriotic duty. Security theater became a feature of everyday life. The vast carnage of COVID policies was sloughed off as collateral damage. 
lost in the sound and fury of this media bombardment were evidence, observation, and measurement, three of the key pillars of science. They were replaced by make-believe forecasts, computer-generated estimates, or other not-to-be-questioned scientific metrics that hospitals would be overrun, mortuaries would spill into the streets, and crematoriums would run out of fuel for disposing of all the bodies. Even as direct observation and real scientific data showed none of this to be true, the public health apparatus and media juggernaut ensured the public would not be exposed to such heresy. A digital curtain of mass McCarthyite-like censorship descended upon this brave new world of fact-free hysteria. No amount of evidence could slow the propaganda machine which remained in high gear, spitting out a nonstop stream of sanctimonious slogans and exaggerated death tallies. The intended effect was widespread panic, resulting in a collective psychosis that negated all thought. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. We don't have time. We must act now. Listen to the experts. Follow the science. We don't have the luxury of critical thinking. And most importantly, all who question the official narrative must be condemned. So put simply, COVID-19 was not an epidemiological event. It was a psychological operation. And two years later, as bureaucrats and politicians wind down the COVID restrictions in order to quell growing unrest, we can be assured they will insist on retaining the right, in quotation marks, to reimpose them at will. As long as new variants lurk right around the corner, public health bureaucrats and pandemic profiteers can invent the next health emergency to impose more shutdowns for any viral event that conveniently suits their political and financial aims. And while the COVID propaganda has vanished, it's imperative that we keep the mountain of lies under scrutiny and continue unveiling the massive corruption that defines the COVID era. This is the only path towards justice and is necessary to defend against future episodes of pandemic hysteria. Now, ultimately, there can be no comprehensive debate and complete understanding of the devastating consequences of the COVID crisis policies without a historical, up-to-date analysis of the medical industry's role in pushing socioeconomic and political agendas which benefit the ruling elites. It's vital to understand that the public health industry is now directly tied to global markets and operates based on the demands of those financial conglomerates. Manufactured pandemics are now mammoth investment opportunities, that increase the wealth of billionaires and further consolidate their power. And it's also necessary to recognize the primary purpose of the medical industry is no longer the art of healing, rather as a financial instrument, benefiting rather investors. We the people must also recognize that the medical industry has been fully weaponized and is now used as a punitive system designed to process, dehumanize, and control every single person in the system. Before our very eyes, we've seen up close how mere biological existence is criminalized by that system. Now, the magic act of COVID vanishing from media view and public perception is not due to any medical miracle or the natural trajectory of a virus losing its potency. It was performed by those who manufactured this reality and committed countless crimes, coordinated in an attempt to slip out the back door, avoid further public inquiry, and escape any legal consequences. So, the story of the virus is nearly over. The sorcery that it created, though, has not been exercised. We won't have truly won until it has been universally established that the medical, that medical freedom is a non-negotiable commodity controlled by the state, bureaucrats, political opportunists, or medical cartel. we got to take it back from them. 
Nothing has been won till the ideology that the state controls our bodily autonomy has been thoroughly repudiated. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to just do a really quick follow-up on the piece that I shared in the last segment. That's the piece from Michael Bryant, Two Years to Flatten the World. The thing that just jumps out at me here is he talks about how the urgent message that we have to take from what we've learned over the past two years is that we are under sustained psychological warfare and have been for some time. And I'm going to talk about this in some detail in this next segment, but it, I, I can't tell you how many times I personally find myself going, holy cow, am I losing my mind here? Am I going crazy? Just just following the different news headlines, the different developments, the different things that have become normalized. I know I'm not alone in this. And I know there are people who are like, well, Brian, you lost your marbles a long time ago. And who knows? Maybe I did. But I know this, and I think this is what Michael Bryant was, was pointing out here, is this story is not finished until the individuals and the institutions that deceived us, that psychologically tried to, tried to program our minds and censored and persecuted dissenting voices over the last two years, until these individuals and these institutions are held publicly accountable, this fight is not over. So in all the ways that life has returned to normal, or at least it feels somewhat normal, that's great. But the risk is still there. There are still people who will lose their jobs, you know, for some arbitrary, you know, mandate. Well, by April 30th, you haven't taken the jab. You're going to lose your job. How is that still going on? Why is that still a bargaining chip? Why is that still leverage that can be used to force people into a medical procedure they don't want? And in most cases, don't even need. I guess this is the time to just acknowledge. It's going to take courage. If you are determined to live as a free individual, you cannot be a sissy. You've got to be used to being um, doubted, shouted down, you know, maligned in public and, and otherwise, you know, excommunicated from polite society because polite society would would go right back to putting on the masks and and doing all the jumping through all the hoops that uh, the experts are telling them to it's going to take some real mental strength in order to do this to to stand firm and to be resilient and from there i want to pivot to a, a commentary here this is the latest from james corbett and if you haven't subscribed to the corbett report you are missing out on a really valuable information resource this guy is solid and he has a very informative guide to fifth-generation warfare. Now, my longtime listeners know I've, I've been talking about the different generations of warfare for many, many years. And when we talk about warfare, we're not just talking about kinetic warfare like you're seeing in Ukraine right now, the one that the media is trying to get you to focus on exclusively. We're talking about another kind of warfare that's taking place virtually everywhere on the globe and involving virtually everyone on the planet, young and old alike, male and female, military, civilian. As James Corbett describes it, it is the war of every government against its own population and of every international institution against free humanity. 
But he says, this is no ordinary war. Most of the victims of this warfare aren't even able to identify it as war, nor do they understand that they are combatants in it. This is why I jokingly refer to, you know, the idea of, hey, we're all veterans of the war against reality. Well, James uh, James Corbett is going to unpack that for us. He says it's called fifth-generation warfare, and I'm here to tell you all about it. So what is fifth-generation warfare anyway? And come to think of it, what were the first four generations of warfare? For an in-depth answer to the latter question, he says you're going to want to read The Changing Face of War into the Fourth Generation. Now, this is a 1989 article from Marine Corps Gazette, co-authored by William S. Lind. And you want to watch William S. Lind and Philip Giraldi, Fourth Generation Warfare in the Deep State. There are links to both of these. But he says, especially pay attention to the presentation by Lind from 13 minutes onward. In a nutshell, Lind and his cohort's thesis is that the modern age of warfare began with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 which Lind opines gave the state a monopoly on war. From that point on, modern warfare went through three generations, namely first-generation warfare, that was the tactics of line and column developed in the era of the smoothbore musket. Right, This is the soldiers marching in lines with drums and fifes and what have you. Second-generation warfare were the tactics of indirect fire and mass movement developed in the era of the rifled musket, breech loaders, barbed wire, and the machine gun. Third-generation warfare were the tactics of non-linear movement, including maneuver and infiltration. Uh, Fire and maneuver, I guess would be another way to put it, developed in response to the increase in battlefield firepower starting in World War I. Now, this, according to Lind and his co-authors, brought us to the late 20th century when the nation-state began to lose its monopoly on war and military combat returned to a decentralized form. In this era... The era of fourth-generation warfare, the lines between civilian and military become blurred. Armies tend to engage in counterinsurgency operations rather than military battles, and enemies are more often motivated by ideology and religion, making psychological operations more important than ever. If you want a good but painful example of this, the terrorists who flew the planes into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon... They were non-state actors. They were not official soldiers of any particular government. But they were driven by a they were driven by a sense of morality that what they were doing was an appropriate response to what Osama bin Laden had considered atrocities either carried out by the American government or things that were intolerable to support for Israel, the stationing of US troops on Saudi soil. The, you know, the deaths of uh, 500,000, you know, old and young in Iraq due to sanctions. That was, he was staking out the moral high ground in his mind and felt that uh, this was a good way to, to fight back and to draw the, um, draw the United States into a war that would, would bleed it, which it most definitely did. It's an example of asymmetrical warfare in which a smaller, weaker force nonetheless can wreak havoc. Think of a hornet flying through the window of your car and attacking you as you're driving down the highway. By itself, that hornet couldn't do anything but become bug splat on your windshield. But once it gets inside your car, you might wreck your car if you are deathly afraid of hornets, which I happen to be. So I'm going to skip over a lot of the stuff here, but fifth-generation warfare, as he describes it, as as, uh, James Corbett describes it, is much more broad. It covers many more areas of our lives, including the psychological angle. 
So he talks about how the best way to understand fifth-generation warfare is to look at some of the ways it's being waged against us, and it starts with information warfare. He talks about uh, neurological warfare. This one is, is really interesting, especially when you consider how hard uh, people were being pushed to take the vaccine. I, you know, I'm not saying that oh, that's an example of neurological warfare, but um, some of the neurological reactions and some of the neurological uh, damage that happened to people after taking it kind of makes you wonder, why were they pushing it so hard? There's also biological warfare which is part of this fifth-generation warfare. There's economic warfare. Next time you're gassing up your car, ask, you know, is someone trying to make me suffer? So the real war, as James Corbett describes it, he says there is a world war going on right now. It's a fifth-generation war, whatever you want to call it, but it's being waged across all of these different domains simultaneously. And what it is is a war for full-spectrum dominance of every battlefield and every terrain from the farthest reaches of the globe and beyond to the inner spaces of your body, even to your innermost thoughts. How about that? And it's a war on you. Now, he says, recognizing this task we face seems nearly insurmountable. How are we to fight back in a war that the majority of people don't even recognize is taking place. How do you fight back against an enemy that spent decades refining its weapons of economic and military and technological and biological control? How do you fight back on a war that's taking place on not even two or three fronts, but in every domain and battle space simultaneously? Well, he goes into a couple of different things here, but one of the things he points out is he says, look, we need to unplug We detach ourselves from this system in every way possible. And he's specifically talking about creating parallel societies. We don't achieve our freedom by asking for more scraps from the master's table or gently complying as we're herded into ever more constrictive technological pens or by thinking that we can win this war by engaging the enemy in their controlled domain. You only achieve victory by, by creating your own table, your own economy, your own communities of interest. That's going to require a lot of work. It's easier said than done, but he says there is no alternative. Well, won't they come after that parallel society? You know, is that that the rebuttal that people are going to throw out? Yeah. He says, the point is you're already a target of the enemy in a war that you probably didn't even realize was going on. Yes, the enemy will come after you, but they're already dominating you in more ways than any one person can fully understand. So stop playing their game. Stop fighting their war. Turn your time, your power, your authority, your attention, your energy, your resources into creating a parallel society on our own terms. I think that's actually exciting to be a part of that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who do not want to be told what to think but would like to think about whatever it is they've been told or whatever it is they've read or whatever they've heard. If you're one of those individuals, welcome. Come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. More importantly, though, I'm going to invite you 
to embrace your heritage as a free individual and to make the difference you were born to make. Because I think that's true about every single one of us. There are great sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. I wish you would give them a little bit of your attention when the, when the time is right. They include GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. Well, let's, uh, let's start with a little bit of a breakdown of what exactly was the president of the United States doing in Poland over the, over the weekend. And I, I spend as little time on politics. I spend less, less time, you know, almost as little time on politics as I, as I do on, on covering the Oscars. Although it sounds like the Oscars were pretty interesting as well over the weekend. But I've got an article here from Glenn Greenwald. Biden's reckless words underscore the dangers of the U.S.'s use of Ukraine as a proxy war. And you're going to be hearing that phrase more and more as, as people are calling out what's happening, the United States and, and the government and it, our, our own government, it's focus on Ukraine as, you know, the epicenter of the battle for freedom. I mean, come on. The president is saying things like, we just, to the people of Ukraine, I say, we stand with you in your fight for freedom. Why can't he say that to the American people? Because we're engaged in a fight for freedom as well. Now, granted, we're not lobbing artillery back and forth at each other yet, but seems like uh, it, it just seems like a very manufactured kind of uh, focus for our attention. And Glenn Greenwald gets right to the heart of the matter here. He says, "Look, the central questions for central question for Americans from the start of the war in Ukraine was what role, if any, should the U.S. government play in that war." A necessarily related question, if the U.S. is going to involve itself in this war, what objectives should drive that involvement? Now, Greenwald says prior to the U.S.'s jumping directly into this war, those questions were never meaningfully considered. Instead, the emotions deliberately stoked by the relentless media attention to the horrors of this war, horrors which, contrary to the West media propaganda, are common to all wars, including its own, left little to no space for public discussion of those questions. The only acceptable modes of expression in U.S. discourse were to pronounce that the Russian invasion was unjustified and that using parlance, which the 2011 version of Chris Hayes correctly dismissed as adolescent, that Putin is a bad guy. Now, these denunciation rituals, no matter how cathartic and applause-inducing, supplied no useful information about what actions the U.S. should or should not take when it comes to this increasingly dangerous conflict. That was the purpose of so severely restricting discourse to those simple moral claims, to allow policymakers in Washington free reign to do whatever they wanted in the name of stopping Putin without being questioned. Glenn Greenwald says, indeed, as so often happens when war breaks out, anyone questioning U.S. political leaders instantly had their patriotism and loyalty impugned, unless one was complaining that the U.S. should become more involved in the conflict than it already was a form of pro-war dissent that's always permissible in American discourse. So with these discourse rules firmly implanted, those who attempted to invoke a former President Obama's own arguments, former President Obama's own arguments about a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, namely that Ukraine is a core Russian interest but not an American one, and that therefore the U.S. should not risk a confrontation with Moscow over it, were widely maligned as Kremlin assets, if not agents. Others who urged the U.S. to try to avert war through diplomacy 
by, for instance, formally vowing that NATO membership would not be offered to Ukraine and that Kiev would remain uh, neutral in the new Cold War pursued by the West with Moscow, face the same set of accusations about their loyalty and patriotism. But he says most taboo of all was any discussion of the heavy involvement of the U.S. in Ukraine starting in 2014 up to the invasion, from micromanaging Ukrainian politics to arming its military to placing military advisors and intelligence officers on the ground to train its soldiers how to fight, something Biden announced he was considering last November, all of which amounted to a form of de facto NATO expansion without the formal membership. And that leaves to the side the still unanswered yet supremely repressed question of what Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland referred to as the Ukrainians' biological research facilities, so dangerous and beyond current Russian bio-research capabilities, that she gravely feared they would fall into Russian hands. Now, as a result of the media's embracing of moral righteousness in lieu of debating these crucial geopolitical questions... The U.S. government has consistently and aggressively escalated its participation in this war with barely any questioning, let alone opposition. U.S. officials are boastfully leading the effort to collapse the Russian economy. Along with its NATO allies, the U.S. has flooded Ukraine with billions of dollars of sophisticated weaponry, with at least some of those arms ending up in the hands of the actual neo-Nazi battalions integrated into the Ukrainian government and military. It's providing surveillance technology in the form of drones and its own intelligence to enable Ukrainian targeting of Russian forces. President Biden threatened Russia with a response in kind if Russia were to use chemical weapons. Meanwhile, reports the New York Times CIA officers are helping to ensure that crates of weapons are delivered into the hands of vetted Ukrainian military units. So the point here that Glenn Greenwald is making is that the U.S. is by definition waging a proxy war against Russia, using Ukrainians as their instrument with the goal not of ending the war, but of prolonging it. So obvious is this fact about U.S. objectives, even the New York Times last Sunday explicitly reported that the Biden administration seeks to help Ukraine lock Russia in a quagmire, albeit with care not to escalate into a nuclear exchange. Indeed, even some American officials assert that as a matter of international law, the provision of weaponry and intelligence to the Ukrainian army has made the United States a co-belligerent. Though this is an argument that some legal experts dispute. Surveying all of this evidence, as well as discussions with his own and U.S. and British sources, Niall Ferguson, writing in Bloomberg, proclaimed, I conclude that the U.S. intends to keep this war going. U.K. officials similarly told him the U.K.'s number one option is for the conflict to be extended and thereby bleed Putin. So in sum, the Biden administration is doing exactly that which former President Obama warned in 2016 should never be done, risking war between the world's two largest nuclear powers over Ukraine. Yet if any pathology defines the last five years of U.S. mainstream discourse, it's that any claim that undercuts the interests of U.S. liberal elites, no matter how true, is dismissed as Russian disinformation. As we witnessed most vividly, in the run-up to the 2020 election, when that label was unquestioningly yet falsely applied by the union of CIA, corporate media, and big tech to the laptop archive revealing Joe Biden's political and financial activities in Ukraine and China, any facts which establishment power centers want to demonize or suppress are reflexively labeled Russian disinformation. Hence, the DNC propaganda arm Media Matters now lists as pro-Russian propaganda the indisputable fact that the U.S. is not defending Ukraine, 
but rather exploiting and sacrificing it to fight a proxy war with Moscow. So the more true a claim is, the more likely it is to receive this designation in the U.S. establishment discourse. Now, Glenn Greenwald goes on to talk about how there are few, if any, risks graver or more reckless than a direct U.S.-Russia military confrontation. He says that really should be obvious enough uh, that you shouldn't have to explain it. But that seems to have been completely forgotten in the zeal, the arousal, the purpose and excitement which war always triggers. And it takes little to no effort to recognize the current emergence of the dynamic about which Adam Smith so fervently warned 244 years ago in The Wealth of Nations. Quote, In great empires, the people who live in the capital and in the provinces remote from the scene of action feel, many of them, scarce any inconveniency from the war, but enjoy at their ease the amusement of reading in the newspapers the exploits of their own fleets and armies. To them, this amusement compensates the small difference between the taxes they pay on account of the war and those which they have been accustomed to pay in time of peace. They are commonly dissatisfied with the return of peace, which puts an end to their amusement and to a thousand visionary hopes of conquest and national glory from a longer continuance of the war. So the grave dangers of the world's two largest nuclear-armed powers acting on opposite sides of a hot war extend far beyond any intention by the U.S. to deliberately engage Russia directly. But Glenn Greenwald says such a war, even with the U.S. waging it only through its proxies, proxies rather, severely escalates the tensions, the distrust, the hostilities, and the climate of paranoia. And that's particularly true given that ever since 2016 and Hillary's loss, Democrats have decided to blame Putin... And half of the American public has been feeding on a nonstop toxic diet of anti-Russian hatred under the guise of Russiagate. This is an excellent article. It's well worth your time. You'll find it linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is one of my sponsors on this program. And if you are looking for a mortgage, whether it's a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, Heather is the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. And this is true for my listeners both in Utah and in Idaho. If you are looking for a home loan and you know this is a very hot real estate market, you don't really have time to twiddle your thumbs, you want to have yourself pre-qualified. Heather makes that process just as easy as can be. She understands what the lenders need. She understands what you as the borrower need. And she has decades of experience and a company with the clout to make your loan happen without delay. You can contact her by calling 435-703-4522. In St. George, her office is located at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, let's talk a little bit about digital money. And if you remember nothing else from today's show, this is the thing I want you to to have etched into your mind. Individuals have the right to keep secrets, but your government doesn't. Ooh, how subversive, right? Got an article here from Whitson G. Waldo with the lowdown on digital money and liberty. 
Whitson Waldo says, hey, the Biden administration is considering the implementation of digital money, and this transition has some time urgency because the Chinese consider digital money to be a financial opportunity by which they can displace the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. So there are tremendous advantages to being the world's reserve currency. This is a matter of national interest. But any transition to digital money poses a challenge to liberty. For example, the Chinese consider digital money to be another step down further in their totalitarian social scoring system. Controlling money digitally provides the power to cut off an individual completely from the financial system. And this directly threatens an individual by withholding the means to eat, be clothed, and have shelter. Liberty is directly in the crosshairs because property can be impounded or seized and without private property, which provides the means to be independent of government, but there is no liberty. One thing learned from the COVID-19 medical tyranny was there were a couple of libertarians in Congress, but there were no constitutional conservatives anywhere in Washington, D.C. Further, the 2020 election highlighted that one of the two major political parties has abandoned classical liberalism in lieu of progressivism. Progressivism having no limits, progressives have devolved into fascists. And this fascism embraces socialism with government control of nominally private businesses by means of regulation and taxes. Also, by its nature, progressive fascism is intolerant of political opponents and free speech. Free speech is assaulted by intolerance of different opinions, considering any proposal for debate on the merits to be anathema, attacking, imprisoning, even delegitimizing political opponents, and stoking cancel culture to isolate or even precipitate unemployment of individuals. Unfortunately, the second major political party has a large percentage of progressives among elected politicians. And while this is an unfortunate assessment of the status, it doesn't bode well for passage. It does underscore the need for a constitutional amendment to protect individual rights and our liberty when digital money inevitably comes. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? He says, before the U.S. implements any system of digital money... A constitutional amendment addressing several important points is needed to protect individual rights and liberty. A statute is unacceptable because it's too easily undone by progressives with authoritarian inclinations. More permanent protection of individual rights and liberty is needed. This constitutional amendment needs to guarantee an individual's right to privacy of his digital money. Before the government can take certain intrusive actions, the government needs to obtain a court-ordered warrant based upon probable cause some crime has been committed. That is to say, obtaining such a warrant should have to clear a high bar. Otherwise, aside from nominal record-keeping and that strictly strictly sequestered, the government needs to be precluded from monitoring, observing, recording, storing, obtaining metadata for analysis, and analyzing or receiving analysis of any data of individual and corporate accounts. The constitutional amendment needs to outlaw asset forfeiture, seizure, impounding, or freezing of individual or corporate funds unless government law enforcement has obtained a court order after due process and then only after an individual or corporation, corporation rather, has been convicted of a pertinent crime. The asset seized should not have a value exceeding what is determined to be the amount of the ill-gotten gains. Asset forfeiture, as widely practiced today by all levels of law enforcement at local, county, state, and federal levels, is unconstitutional because there is no presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Often it's simply some level of government taking private property without compensation, for the purpose of budget revenue enhancement. 
Now, recovery of assets seized by law enforcement can be costly, time-consuming, and problematic for individuals. It's almost unheard of that government officials are punished for improperly seizing assets. Asset forfeiture, as currently implemented, is a direct threat to private property and to liberty. And so he says this constitutional amendment should indicate the amount of digital currency released is fixed forever. The quantity of digital money can't be increased for any reason at any future time. Digital money, as proposed by government central banks, is fiat currency. As such, its value is not anchored. People thinking digital money is a store of value will be misled. The remedy is to prevent debasement of the value of the currency. Now, the current inflationary debacle caused by the profligacy of the Congress and two presidents, the current and the last, working with the Federal Reserve, should be cautionary for how any digital money scheme is implemented. Currently, the Federal Reserve implements monetary policy to accommodate government deficits. In this way, the Federal Reserve facilitates spending beyond means and funding of endless wars. If the quantity of digital money is fixed, then the Federal Reserve will no longer create asset bubbles, which eventually lead to financial busts. And because of such actions, the Fed is directly responsible for the business cycle. By fixing the quantity of digital money, the Fed will no longer create asset bubbles that will burst later. He says prosperity isn't, main, isn't served rather with malinvestment enabled by low interest rates and easy money provided by the Federal Reserve. But if the quantity of digital money is fixed, then malinvestment caused by the injection of new money and easy credit will be reduced dramatically because the soundest business proposals will be the ones funded with capital from savings. Monetary inflation, which is a hidden regressive tax on the poor and middle class, will no longer be a plague on the citizens. Related to this, the constitutional amendment should specify no other digital money may be issued by the government. If the amendment constrains digital money to a fixed quantity, then one way to circumvent circumvent this prescription would be to simply issue another kind of digital money and then specify both be considered legal tender. Further, the amendment should prohibit the taxation of cryptocurrencies, gold and silver, and any transactions used with these. Finally, other such forms of currency such as cryptocurrency, gold, and silver should be recognized as legal tender. And, and finally, the constitutional amendment should provide that uh, the Congress perform frequent and regular audits for full compliance with the requirements of this amendment. Violators of any provision should be subject to severe criminal penalties. No audit content should be classified secret, and all audit results should be made public immediately. Now, Whitson Waldo III says... As, as previously mentioned, there is danger in the tyrannical use of digital money to complement any already existing social scoring system. So the most straightforward remedy is for the constitutional amendment to expressly forbid the U.S. government from implementing or coordinating with any third party to implement or pressuring local, county, and state governments to implement any social scoring system that would be used by the government for any purpose. In this way, digital money is decoupled from any social scoring system. And here he hammers home the point. Individuals have the right to keep secrets. Governments don't. Any digital money scheme needs to respect this principle so that privacy is and liberty is protected. And it's important to get in front of this issue because digital money is coming. I'm still a big believer of the idea that if you can't get your hands on it, it's not really your money. Make of that what you will, but change is definitely in the wind. 
might be a good time to start studying this out and deciding on your course of action. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I hope you're enjoying this experience of reveling in wrong think with us. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. This is the place for all your sewing and quilting needs. They are the people to talk to if you are an enthusiast or just maybe getting started. I'll tell you this, uh, the technology has come a long way. Uh, Last night, my wife was asking me, honey, where's the sewing kit? Now, she has a nice serger. She has a really nice sewing machine. She's actually pretty skilled with both of them. But, uh, you know, for me, it's a challenge just to so much as sew on a button. But if you're one of the people who is just determined, I am going to, I'm going to make sure that uh, I know how to use this. Your best bet is to go to Sewing and Quilting Center. Purchase your machine from them. They have a wonderful selection to choose from. The very finest quilters, uh, sewing enthusiasts, and designers buy their supplies, buy their machines from Sewing and Quilting Center. But they'll actually teach you how to use your machine. How nice is that? They can service your machine years after the fact. This is a family-owned business, and they have been taking care of people in southern Utah for, oh my goodness, since 1984. What would that be? Almost 38 years now? Yeah. Pretty impressive stuff. It's uh, currently owned by Teresa and Eric Alsop. I'm very happy to have them as sponsors. Please consider doing business with SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Well, we've heard the analogy about uh, frogs in a boiling pot of water, right? I think that's that's all been pretty uh, uh, pretty clearly heard. And, and you know, they're turning up the heat, but you know, it's been so gradual that a good many Americans are boiled. Roger Kimball begs to differ. He says, uh, when it comes to boiling or boiling and jumping frogs, our rulers think that they have anesthetized those portions of the population that they haven't yet simply bought off. But he says they might find that there's quite a lot of jump left in the frog yet. He says, it's said that if you toss a frog into a pot of hot water, it will instantly jump out. If, however, you toss it into a pot of cold water and then gradually increase the heat to the boiling point, the frog will linger languidly in the increasingly hot bath as it's slowly cooked alive. Now, despotic politicians who abhor the fuss of public unrest have long noted the application of this apologue to human affairs. In early March of 2020, if Anthony Fauci had said that we were about to shut down the economy for two years, force people to wear paper masks, socially distance and forcibly prevent them from going to church or visiting their dying friends and relatives, there might likely have been a a revolt. But that isn't how it happened. Fauci and the health police got everything they wanted. They destroyed thousands of middle-class businesses, enriched the entitled class, and more generally made fools and peons of all of us. But they did it slowly. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Remember that? Remember early on when Fauci said it would be fine for young, healthy people to go on a cruise? Remember when he poo-pooed the effectiveness of masks? Well, whenever else, whatever else they demonstrated, the regime's COVID policies and the public's response to those policies showed that entire populations could be herded and shorn like sheep. All you needed was a public health pretext, not a genuine emergency, mind you, just a pretext and battalions of aspiring godlighters willing to enforce the rules, bang, instant and prolonged hysteria. 
Now, Roger Kimball says, like a well-masticated stick of chewing gum, COVID has lost its savor. New gambits must be devised to cow the public. Climate change and green energy are hardy perennials, but the economic devastation wrought by their advocates has stripped the sheen off those baubles of elite virtue signaling. Economics may not be a science exactly, but you don't have to be Milton Friedman to understand that if you shut down large swaths of your own energy industry while printing trillions of dollars in so-called stimulus money, the result will be sharply rising prices and runaway inflation which is exactly what we have, courtesy of Joe Biden and his bureaucratic minders. Now, just a few weeks ago, the water was still tepid. Then Vladimir Putin handed Biden a large gift. He invaded Ukraine. Suddenly, every failure could be blamed on Putin, on Russia, on someone or something other than the senile incompetence running the United States. Gas prices at eye-watering levels? Well, blame it on Putin, even though it was Biden's decision to shutter large sectors of the American energy industry that got that ball rolling. It didn't take Biden long to go from suggesting that a minor incursion from Russia into Ukraine would be acceptable to hopping on the neocon chest-beating wagon. Now, the great thing about events, the crisis, according to every TV news story in Ukraine, is that it can be wheeled out to explain away every failure, as well as to prep the population for future depredations. The price of sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia, Biden eagerly acknowledged. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country uh, as well. Well, you can say that again. People were just absorbing the news about rising energy costs and inflation when they were hit with a term that just yesterday almost seemed quaint in the developed world. Food shortages. One day, Jen Psaki assured reporters, we're not expecting a food shortage here at home. Then her boss corrected her. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food food shortages. And it's going to be real, said Biden. Oh, the jacuzzi's getting a little warm, isn't it? And if our rulers can destroy the economy and make us more dependent by sanctioning Russia, which also, as Biden admitted, means sanctioning ourselves, just think what they would be able to do should they actually contrive to go to war with Russia. Expect not only greater economic hardship, but also a sharp increase in social control, censorship, and intolerance. So far, Biden has kept some distance from the warmongers in the regime media. But Roger Kimball says, I wonder if his resolve is faltering. Just the other day, speaking to members of the 82nd Airborne Division in Poland, the mask seemed to slip a bit. You're going to see when you're there, he said. You're going to see women, young people, standing in the middle in front of a damn tank saying, I'm not leaving. Hmm. Softening us up for boots on the ground, perhaps? Now, the White House quickly walked that back. In fact, is there a new uh, department in the White House dedicated exclusively to reformulating what the president and vice president say for public consumption? By when you're there, a White House spokesman said, the president did not mean to imply that he was preparing to send them to Ukraine. And it was the same in his speech in Poland on Friday. He stated explicitly, Vladimir Putin could not remain in power. For God's sake, he said, this man cannot remain in power. Fighting words? What? Wars have been started over less inflammatory language. But then the White House emitted some mollifying updates. Well, the president's point, you see, was that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors in uh, that region. Uh, He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia or regime change. Roger Kimball says, well, I wonder if Putin got that memo. Maybe he did, but maybe not. Since Biden is depending on Putin to help broker the disastrous nuclear deal with Iran? Huh. 
He says it's difficult to plumb the depths of cynicism that fires the Biden administration's motions with respect to Ukraine. On the one hand, we're being invited to join a, in a grandiose morality play in which the great, the great white-hatted forces of the West talk endlessly about peace and democracy while waging or at least fomenting war. On the other hand, the war drums drown out the cries of ordinary people, those millions of people Hillary Clinton and her ilk dismiss as deplorable, who acknowledge Putin's crimes but also acknowledge Ukraine's deep corruption and totalitarian leanings and wonder why we're strangling ourselves to intervene in that battle. Now, the ostensible reason, of course, is to export truth, justice in the American way and to teach that bully Putin a lesson. Roger Kimball says the real reason, I suspect, is to consolidate power at home while attempting to fire up the war profit machine abroad. So far, Americans have gritted their teeth and taken it. But he says, I'm not sure, however, that those with their fingers on the knobs of the burner have been sufficiently careful about how quickly they are raising the temperature. Things can get out of hand very quickly, and I'm not just talking about military showdowns. When average families can no longer pay their rent or mortgage, gas up their car, or even put food on the table, all bets are off. Our rulers think they've anesthetized those portions of the population they've simply not bought off. But they might find there's quite a lot of jump left in the frog yet. And if so, they may be the ones in hot water. Now, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, you'll know I'm... My, my advocacy here is not about let's all get good and angry and then in that anger go find something to do. More than anything, I want to promote awareness. And with that awareness, the, the reality that, you know, nobody is coming to save us. Certainly nobody wearing a political mask, you know, and, and uh, you know, coming to act as our political savior. It's not going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that you should, you know, cease if you're involved in political activities and trying to elect good, wise, and honest people to, you know, various representative offices locally at the state level, etc. But if we're going to save, if we're going to save ourselves, it's going to be on us to do it. And so it's time to start thinking about how can I build stability? First of all, starting within my own household. From there... Look at your neighborhood. What can I do to build the kind of relationships to where we would pull together and help one another? Because we choose to, not because we're being forced to. I mean, if there was ever a time to start thinking about, uh, you know, planning a community garden or to, to create a camping club, if you will, with your neighbors and, and, and the people who are close to you, people you can trust, I think this is the time to do it. I don't know what the future holds, You know, if I look at biblical prophecy, I gather things could get tough. And I think that's a very real likelihood. In fact, I think uh, right now we're on a course where things are about to get much tougher. Just don't forget who's in charge and don't forget you have control. But it's got to start at a more local level. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment for the day. I would encourage you, if you have the time or inclination, go to my show notes page. 
First of all, click the subscribe button so that I can send you a copy of my show notes each day that I do the program. You'll find links to various articles and commentaries that uh, should help you get a better idea of what's going on in the world without appealing to your more base instincts. In other words, without adding more anger or hatred or frustration or fear to the situation. I, uh, I'm pretty picky. But I'm also very blessed to, to have abundance in, in finding a number of great commentators out there who I think really see things with clarity and have um, very viable solutions and, and, and points of view to offer in regards to what we can and should be doing. Actually, I'm going to share one of those with you coming up here in just a few moments. But if you will subscribe, you will find that there is a lot of information available to you which you can consume at your leisure And I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. If you're thinking about uh, looking into crypto further, there is a button on my website, Buy Crypto. You know, you can click on that. It will take you to governyourcrypto.com. This is just purely for those who have reached the point where they realize, wow, our monetary system is so tied in with these institutions that are trying to exert control over us in many different ways. If you don't want to end up like the Canadian truckers, you know, frozen out of your bank accounts and otherwise being punished for having a dissenting point of view, maybe it's worth a closer look at crypto. GovernYourCrypto.com will start uh, that journey for you. Click on it and see what you think. So I've had uh, quite an experience here the last week or so. My daughter is raising a steer for 4-H. And uh, unfortunately, she left town right about the time that it was it was a time to go uh, halter break her steer. So that uh, duty fell to dear old dad. And I have been uh, cowboying <laughs> in the truest sense uh, for the last uh, last 10 days or so. And it's it's been a very interesting experience. I never thought I would buy a pair of muck boots, but I proudly own a pair of knee high muck boots. And yes, they are. They are as mucky as, as can be because I've spent a lot of time slipping and sliding around in, well, good old-fashioned manure. But I have gained an appreciation, and it continues to grow, for the producers of food and the people who ranch, the people who are involved in agriculture. I, you know, I love to sit down to a good meal as much as anybody. But I think sometimes it's easy to forget the connection of how did that food arrive on my plate. And I think the the mindset most of us have is, well, I just go to the store, I go to Costco, and I get what I need and bring it home and fix it, and it's great. And that's that's part of the journey. But if you if you truly understood the amount of work and effort that goes into, and, and I'm just going to use, for instance, uh, you know, raising beef, holy smokes, you'd have a very deep appreciation for for every morsel of, of steak that ever has crossed your plate. And the thing that has impressed me the most is the kids that I see involved in this are some of the most incredible can-do individuals. I mean, I've spent more time out there on on the ranch, you know, helping to to get the help get these steers halter broken and and get it ready. My daughter now has taken over, and of course, her steer absolutely loves her. Yeah, he wouldn't follow me around like a puppy, but he does her. So I guess good for her. But these kids are just amazing. I see them driving tractors. I see them driving extendable forklifts. I see them, you know, driving their family cars. Young kids, eight years old, well, that kid's been driving for years now. And the crazy thing about it is, I know this would make, you know, some of the people with more of a controlling nature, their eyes would pop out of their heads. How can you do that? That's so irresponsible. But they do it. And they play around on four-wheelers, and, you know, I, I look at them and I think, These are kids who are being raised to do hard things, 
They can get in there and they can they can effectively work with these 1,200-pound steers. I have hope for the future when I see that. And I have an appreciation for the good, hardworking people of every stripe who work to put food on the plates of, of Americans. I think that all of us would be well served to take a little more active role in not only understanding but participating in, in where our food comes from. All right. Sorry, that was a little sermon, but I'm going to step down from the pulpit now. I want to share with you a thought from Annie Holmquist, because I know that if you're listening to this program, there's at some level a good chance that you are serious about making a difference in the world around you. And Annie has some really great advice. She recommends learning to laugh at the times to come. She says, last year has taught me, the last year has taught me that pretty much whenever I see a news item that Twitter sees fit to fact check, The truth is likely to be the exact opposite of what they say it is. She's right, by the way. All these fact checkers, that's just a that's just a softer name for the ministry of truth. (laughs) You know, just trying to vet everything and tell us what we can and cannot believe. She says the same is probably true of many other news sources. Just like a garbage dump in the heat and humidity of summer, the smell of propaganda is detectable from a mile away. So another one of these news items was trending on Twitter today, and she says, and I laughed. Now don't get me wrong. The tendency to worry or groan or pull my hair out about such lies and propaganda is there, very much so. Like many of you, I find it easy to get dis- to get. Dis- I find it easy to despair or get discouraged, wondering about how to discern truth and where to even find a tiny grain of it in a world that seems overrun with lies. But she says the fact that I involuntarily laughed over the latest news bulletin from our American Pravda gave me hope, for it's a sign that I'm not fearfully dwelling in the clutches of the state. She says, Anthony Esselin explains the concept beautifully in the March-April edition of Chronicles magazine. The state, Esselin asserts, does not grant peace and liberty to individuals. Instead, it seeks to stir people up and keep them in a constant state of dependence and fear. For such a mindset is the life-giving blood of the state. Spiritual liberty, the inner peace of man with God and his creation, is not in the state's interest, Esselin writes, for the state grows by sickness. Now, those of us who live in this ever-ballooning state are the patients kept in a constant simmering unease, tossing and turning in vain to relieve the sores. Simmering unease. Like wondering what to believe or worrying about the latest crisis, whether it be COVID or elections or wars and rumors of wars. Annie Holmquist says, Heaven forbid that in such times of unease we call on God or the structures of family, church, and community that he has established to help us through uncertainties. No, we call upon the state, Esselin writes, that we thereby become state-infected and state-infested. Hence, do we sick people become our own quacks? Now, Esselin fleshes out what this sick state looks like and how it affects us. Quote, the phenomenon works in many and mystifying ways. It's wonders to perform. We worry obsessively about elections, following them and shoveling money into them, and thereby leading a national stage lending a national stage, rather, to the most ambitious and treacherous and aggressively stupid among us. Do we have cause to worry? Of course we do. The state makes sure of it. The progressives make sure of it. All interminably unsettled people make sure of it. But the worry is all to the engrossment of the state. Whether our side wins or loses, our worry is the blood of the state's heart. So what if the state's diagnoses are full of lies and contradictions? All the more to worry you, my dear, to jigger our minds by controlling the language we try to think with. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, 
There are many good people in this world trying to live upright lives who have a major flaw. They worry. They tell themselves that they care deeply about the problems in the world and they want to see those problems turn around and change for the better. And she says, I know because I'm one of I'm often one of those worriers. But sometimes I laugh instead, effortlessly free of the web of fear, thanks to silly certain Twitter send, t- Twitter trends rather. And thanks to Esselin's essay, she says, I now see that worry is simply a trap, sucking us more deeply into the ever-growing vortex of the state. So here's her point. If we truly want to make a difference in our culture, then we will stop worrying. We will laugh at the days to come, focusing not on the troubles of the world and how they could consume us, but on the inner peace that comes from man with God and his creation. That peace, as Esselin's implies, is untouchable by the state. And it vanquishes worry. Okay, I'm I'm really grateful. This is the note that I'm going to end the show on today. Because I think that is absolutely the truth. And yeah, there's some very worrisome, worrisome stuff going on. And the surest way to stay worried about it is to stay plugged into whatever the media is broadcasting at you, you know, around the clock. Just look at what leads the news cycle, and you'll find almost always it's it's framed in the context of a crisis. It's framed in the context of breaking news, and oh, it's terrible, and this is how you should feel. Unplug from the matrix. Take a media fast every so often. That means, you know, yes, you can turn me off as well. Spend some time unplugged, actually interacting with people, inviting people into your life. And just watch how quickly the world starts to look normal again. It's really fascinating. And if you haven't tried it, it's something you almost have to see in order to believe. But I also appreciate that Annie Holmquist recommends keep that sense of humor. Be able to laugh at it. This is one of the reasons why I love the Babylon Bee. I love individuals like J.P. Sears who can communicate truth and do it humorlessly. Or humor, humor, let's try that again. Humorfully. I'm just making up a word, humorously. That's what I was trying to say. This is The Brian Hyde Show.